Welcome to Way Family Church. You're listening to our sermon podcast. Way Family Church is a new church plant in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to join us every Sunday morning at 1030 for worship, the word, and fellowship. If you'd like more information, visit us online at wayfamily.church. Let's go to 1 Peter. We'll continue our study there. Before we get into that, I want to tell you a little bit about... um, uh, what I did a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were able to celebrate our, our anniversary, and it was lovely. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing, though. Usually, when an anniversary is coming up, we get to prepare. And if any of you guys know my wife, you know that she's a very organized person. Uh, if you don't, she is. She's a very organized person. She's all about lists. She's all about check marks. In fact, when we go to the grocery store, if there's something she picked up and it wasn't on her list... Wow. She'll write it on the list so that she can check it off, okay? That's how organized she is. That's how committed she is to just being prepared. And so we normally prepare for an anniversary trip or any kind of trip. This one, however, this last one that we had, we just couldn't do it. We just didn't have the means to prepare for it. We just didn't have, nothing was coming together. So it literally was a last second deal where we knew where we were going and how we were going to do it. And situation with the kids etc it was a very last moment deal and so it was kind of spontaneous if you will for me no problem I like spontaneity I'll go with it I'll roll with it you know for my wife sometimes that's not the case nevertheless the fact that we had the opportunity to get away was good it was special and so the question came up the question was okay how do we make the best of this time that we have. It's only gonna be a short time, right? It's gonna be during the week. This is a great opportunity for us to get away and kind of take a breath, right? How are we gonna make the best of the time? Because after all, we weren't able to make that checklist, okay? And so we ended up in a place, beautiful place. The question was, how do we make the best of our time? And so as days progressed, if you are, I'm sure that you relate. When you're somewhere beautiful, where you're doing something that you really enjoy to do, you really don't want that moment to end. Or at least you don't want it to go in, go um, really quick, right? You really want to savor those moments. And so as we were there, we were in the beautiful mountains, the White Mountains, there was so many things that we did differently because we just didn't have a plan. And so we just rolled with it. We just went and experienced things out of the blue. And it ended up being a very beautiful time. And so as day progressed, the next day, the question that was of utmost importance is, what are we going to do now with the rest of the time that we have here? Because time is of the essence. We're not gonna be here forever. Unfortunately, we're not moving here and we're not gonna be able to enjoy these things every day. So there's gonna be a day where we have to pack up and we have to go back. What are we gonna, how are we gonna make the best of the rest of the time that we have here? And that's essentially, what Peter is going to talk to us about here as we continue in 1 Peter. How do we make the rest of the time the best time, the most productive time? Because if we remember, if we recall what Peter has been saying, he's been talking about how we're only here for a little while compared to the grand scheme of eternity, right? And so if we're only here for a little while, if this lifetime is brief, how are we going to respond to it? How are we going to live the little bit that we have here, this physical life, right? 
how are we going to be <clears throat> the rest of the time that we are here? That's the biggest question, and I think that's the biggest emphasis that Peter lays out for us. And so <clears throat> Peter had a great deal to say about time. And I can kind of refresh your memory a little bit. If we go back to chapter 1 of this same letter, 1 Peter 1, 5, he says this, By God's power, our inheritance is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, there's something in the last time. So in other words, time is important. There's something that's going, going, going to happen, maybe not now, but later. But nevertheless, time is of the essence. Okay, so just hang on for a little while because it's not forever. Time will pass. In verse 11 of chapter 1, he's, he mentions that the prophets inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating. Because, see, time is important. When things happen is important, right? And so Peter has this emphasis on time, and he's saying, hey, what we do with time is pretty important. And in verse 17 of the first chapter also says, in regards to time, if you call him father, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So while we're here, which is pretty much the time of our exile, for we are not of this world, we've talked about this in weeks past, what are we going to do with the rest of the time that we're here? It is important. We've talked about how when we're in trials, when we're in tribulations, when things are bad, when things are hard, hard, we have the tendency to hide. We have the tendency to recluse ourselves or to just back off and do nothing, kind of give up, a sense of surrender, right? It's good to surrender to the Lord, but it's not good to surrender to these trials. It's good to surrender in a way that you're asking the Lord to be strong in your weakness, but if he's going to be strong in your weakness, that means that you gird up the loins of your minds, right? And you, and you gear up for action. And so this message is going to continue as we come to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. And so here's the thing to think about this. Again, going back to the context, Peter certainly had self-awareness of his impending martyrdom. He knew that the church was under persecution, and he knew that it's very likely that he would die very soon. Because not only was the church being persecuted, he was a leader of the church. So he was probably public enemy number one, okay? Peter, Paul, Paul being another one, right? And so he was also told that he would die like Christ, in a, in a, in a sense, right? And so I, I can't help but to imagine that Peter was self-aware that his time was really short. His time of living in this world, the rest of the time that he had here was very short. And so the question was, what are we going to do with the rest of the time that we have here? And this ought to be a question that we ask ourselves every day. Every day when you step out of bed, you should maybe put that on your nightstand. What am I going to do the rest of the time? You know, because that might motivate you to not be lazy that day, because I know we can get lazy. I'm the first one to admit, sometimes sitting on the couch with some YouTube is like my favorite thing to do, right? But that's not necessarily the most productive thing to do, especially in terms of the kingdom of God. Would you agree with that? And so that's the question. And so <clears throat> whether Jesus comes first or death comes first, we know this, that 
what we do the rest of the time that we're here really matters. And we don't know what's going to happen first. We don't know if we're going to be called to Christ first or if he's going to return, right? But it has been pro promised. Uh, you guys are very well, well aware that 100% of people die, right? Uh, everyone does. Actually, I could probably say 99.98% of people because there was Enoch and Elijah who didn't, right? But all of us will come to that finish line and then comes judgment. So let's read. With that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, on my Bible, there's this title that was given to this section. It's called Stewards of Grace. And at first, I didn't quite understand, okay, what's the whole idea here? Let's see if you can kind of catch this, and maybe it'll um, become a little bit more clear as we read this passage. But 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 11, let's read that. It says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the people are, the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I ask, Father, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive from you in a way that moves us, compels us, Lord Jesus, convicts us <clears throat> to... Uh, do what we have been called to do, to live for you, to be ambassadors for you, Lord Jesus, to exemplify you as you have been a great example for us and to us, Lord Jesus, that the world may know you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, whether Jesus comes first or death comes first, we must make the rest of the time count for eternity. Now, you know what I mean by the rest of the time, time now, right? That's pretty clear. We can do that. Peter prescribes four attitudes that Christians can cultivate in this lifetime, this rest of the time that we're here. So I'm going to give you four different attitudes. Now, this is going back to being stewards of grace. If grace has been granted to us by Jesus Christ, 
then we ought to be good stewards of that. You've heard it said about finances, that we need to be good stewards of the treasures that we receive, right? And likewise, we ought to be good stewards of the grace that we've received. So if we have been saved, we are, we are saved indeed. There's no doubt about that. But then what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do with that? Are we going to respond to our salvation? Do, we do have this human responsibility to be able to shine this light, as Jesus said, right? And be the salt of this earth. In other words, make the difference that needs to be made in this world. That is to be a good steward of grace. Because if you've received grace and you do nothing with it, where your salvation is not, let's say, compelling enough for you to share it with someone else, then you're not being a good steward of grace. If you're not ready to serve someone else, you're not being a good steward of grace. Do you see that? We're being bad stewards of grace. Grace is so important. It's of uber importance. In fact, there's nothing more important than that. And if it's that important to you, why couldn't you act, be activated to, to serve and to live in that capacity of grace? And so these four attitudes are very important for us to be able to be good stewards of grace. And this is what Peter prescribes, and I love it. The first one, a militant attitude towards sin. We'll talk about it, verse 1 through 3. We need to have a militant attitude towards sin. The second, we need to have a patient attitude towards the lost or unbelievers. The third, an expectant attitude toward Christ. And finally, a fervent attitude towards other believers or a warm attitude towards other believers. And that's going to be in the last portion of this passage. So let's take it one section at a time. First thing, a militant attitude towards sin. This, this type of attitude will help us be good stewards of grace. What does it mean to have a good, good uh, uh, I'm sorry, a militant attitude towards sin? Let's take a look. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now this clearly refers to Christ's physical suffering and his bodily crucifixion. Underline that because it's very important for what's to come here. Christ suffered in the flesh. It says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, this is a picture of a soldier taking arms. Doesn't, don't you see that here? It's like a soldier who's putting on the adequate equipment because he's getting ready to go into battle. Now, some of you guys are veterans here. I think so. All right, you guys know, you guys very well know what it's like when you first join the military. What do they do? They tried to break your will. That's essentially what is done. They take away everything that you were so that you could be equipped for the mission that's at hand. Because if they don't break your will, if they don't break those ha bad habits that go on with us sometimes, then we're not able to fulfill the missions that are at hand. And so to, to, to do that, you have to have a militant attitude towards those soldiers and those bad behaviors. And so drill sergeants will get in your face and they will correct every mistake that you make. No excuses, no ifs, ands, or buts. We're going to deal with bad attitude so that you can become the best and most compliant soldier, which is of mo most benefit to the nation and to the, to the military, right? This is to have a militant attitude, order, structure, and no shortcuts. We will do the work to be able to come better. But Peter's using this, 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 this language, arm yourselves in the same way, in the same way of what? In the same way that Jesus did. See, Jesus was very militant against sin, towards sin. What does that mean? He did not tolerate it. 
he was, if he caught sin, he would deal with it, but he, deal, he dealt with it in a way that was very gracious, even towards the sinner. So that's very unique because it doesn't punish the person, right? But he's very, very acutely aware and targeting sin all the time. And so he was very militant in this, in the way that it didn't, it, there was no excuses for sin. Jesus would address it. He would die for it. He suffered because of it. Because of our sin, it is the reason that Christ suffered in the flesh. And so up to this point, Peter has been uh, uh, giving us practical instructions to us believers so that we would be trained up for what's ahead. What is ahead? Well, the end is ahead. Trials ahead. Persecutions ahead. And so this letter was clearly written to instruct us and encourage folks um, with uh, with. Uh, defeated attitudes. Think about the people that he's writing. These people were confused. They didn't know. They felt that the end was here. And so Peter's building them up. He's reminding them of these eternal truths. And so our attitudes are not only a defense, but also our weapons. And weak or wrong attitudes will lead us to defeat. Attitude is everything. It's very important. Any teachers in the house? You know when your students have a ready attitude? You know, they just do so much better. But when they have a poor attitude, like they're like not in it for any reason, it makes it so hard to just get through the day, right? Attitude is everything. It can set us up for success or it can set us up for defeat. I love what Warren uh, Wearsby said. He's a theologian. He says this, outlook determines outcome. And the believer must have the right attitudes if he or she is to live a right life. Think about that. Attitude can determine outcome. And the right attitude is important to be able to live a right life, a right life according to the word of God. And so let's continue here. We'll keep reading. It says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's interesting. Let's underline that. What does it mean? <clears throat> Peter's saying is, when we suffer for Christ, then we overcome the power of sin, either by others or by ourselves, meaning when we suffer in a way that we are persecuted, maybe we're called out for our sin. Maybe there's something that really puts a break to what we're doing that is sinful, right? If we're responding in a way that's godly, that's Christ-like to that, then we overcome sin. Did that make that makes sense, right? Because then we're no longer living and doing that act of sin. But it could also be self-imposed where we hate our sin enough where we're the ones who beat ourselves for it and beat ourselves in a way that's good. Because remember, we've been called to, to be holy, to be set apart. And so for that to be uh, possible, there are certain things that we have to limit ourselves from. There are certain boundaries that we have to line, that we have to draw, right? Lines that we have to draw. There are certain no-go places. There are certain things that, hey, I'm not going to do that. I hate that about myself. That is also overcoming sin. That makes sense, right? That, 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 that sinful nature dies. We use that, um, that analogy of, of flesh and sin and what are you going to do, right? What are you going to feed? Are you going to make sin uh, stronger or the flesh stronger? Or are you going to uh, bolster up the spirit to overcome the, the temptations that are at hand? So in that way, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, let's think about something really quick, okay? 
There's a very important to set aside sin. Very important. It's not just because it makes you better. It's not just because it's good for you. But you think about what sin is. Let's think of what sin did to Jesus. Just think about that for a second. What did sin do to Jesus? He had to suffer because of sin. See, we can enjoy that which made Jesus, or, or, or let me ask you this, how can we enjoy that which made Jesus suffer? Let me just kind of give you a quick little analogy. Let's say that a terrible person walks into your home. He has a knife or a dagger or something, and he goes and he hurts someone that you love in your home with that. How would that make you feel about that item that was used to destroy your family? Would you take it and put it in a glass box and put it on the windowsill or the, the mantle or your entry table where you could display it as a trophy and say, hey, this is what hurt my family, my loved one. Would you do that? No, I, I doubt that you would. You would want to get rid of that tool, right? You would, want, you would want to say, I never, ever want to say, I hate that this was even forged. I hate that this was even made. I hate that this was even available to destroy or to hurt my family, right? That's the kind of attitude that we have towards that. That is sin right there. So if, if sin is what caused Jesus to suffer, if those nails, those nine-inch nails were because of our sin, why do we embrace our sin? Why do we put it in a glass case? And why do we put it on the mantle as a trophy? Why are we so proud of the things that bring us pleasure, the very things that put Jesus on the cross? That's very important for us to think about, right? Because we wouldn't do that with a thing that hurt our family members, our loved ones. And so why do we do that? Because it's exactly what put Jesus on the cross, essentially. And so we have to think about what sin does to Jesus. Our Lord Jesus came to the earth to deal with sin and conquer it. And I love the way it, it just turned out for us because of his willingness, because of his militant attitude towards sin. He dealt with the ignorance of sin by teaching the truth and exemplifying it. But see, sometimes we sin because we don't know better, right? But we have his word. We have his example. There's no excuse there. He dealt with the consequences of sin by healing and forgiving. And I am so grateful for that. Imagine if there was no healing or forgiveness for the things that we have endured in our past, the things that we are guilty of in the past. That would be so heavy and awful, wouldn't it? Yet Christ conquered that, the consequences. He dealt with it. And then on the cross, he dealt with the final death blow to sin itself. It's done, right? We're no longer condemned by it. We're no longer um, held uh, let's say captive by it. Now we are freed from it. We can live in a way that is holy. He was armed as if it were, right? We're talking about this militant attitude. He was armed against sin. He was ready to deal with it. He had compassionate for us and for that. All honor and glory to him. Amen? And then we get to this place where we're reading here, and it says, no longer, we're not going to leave the rest, live the rest of the time here in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So the next thing we have to do is learn how to enjoy the will of God. Because here's the thing, and, I, and I, I used to be this guy, and you probably know this from experience or even from someone you know. A lot of folks are very hesitant to say surrender to the Lord's lordship because they enjoy their sin too much. Because being a Christian is too boring. It's too limiting, it's too stifling, you can say, right? Well, that's what a sinner's perspective is. 
Of course they think that because they don't know, they have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But the will of God is actually quite the contrary. It is freeing. It is equipping. It is strengthening. It is fulfilling, right? And when we live according to God's will, I promise you, 100% promise you, you will be satisfied by the will of God. He will not disappoint. You, I promise you that, okay? If we're living by his will, there is no reason why we would be disappointed. And so let's keep reading here. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Some of you guys might think, oh my goodness, those are some of the things I did. Now the context here in regards to the Gentiles is just bringing this original audience back to the culture that they used to live in. Now the Gentiles, meaning a lot of Roman Greco traditions and culture and just the things that they did in the norm included all of these things. You think these are pretty hideous, but we look around the world today, they've become a norm again, okay? This was something very normal to them. So when they saw this, when they read this list, it was, it was something that they definitely perhaps participated in before, okay? And he says, it's done. What you've done is enough, it suffices. There's no need to get more of that. Absolutely no, right? I, I grew up in Los Angeles. You, you may have, may or may have not known that about me. It's a very small town in California. In Los Angeles, everywhere you go, I, I kind of put myself in a situation where I knew somebody, and unfortunately, all bad influences. Now, <laughs> for me personally, there was nothing I could do that was just not bad. In fact, I had this terrible, I was in this terrible place where in my, in my lone, lonesomeness, not loneliness, but in my time alone, oh, my brain would just conspire to do the things that I shouldn't do, right? I, to go meet people that I shouldn't be with and then end up doing the things that I shouldn't be doing. And, and for me, I had to leave Los Angeles. And that was truly the reason why I took off from there. All right? And, and, and now, you know, if I go back to that place, I'm in a different place in life where I'm no longer tempted by certain things that I used to be tempted in the past. But I can tell you what happened in, in L.A. will stay there. Okay, there's no reason for me to ever want to go and exper experiment or re-live uh, anything that has happened in the past. And the same might be for you. Whatever has happened has happened. Okay, but check this out. Sometimes, actually, a lot of the times, it's good to remember what you have been um, brought out of, well, who you were before you met Jesus. And this is tricky because for some of us, this could be a problem, right? To remember who we were before we met Jesus. For some of us, that could be like an opportunity for Satan to distract you or to slow you or to discourage you. Maybe there's guilt in your past. Maybe there's something that you just don't want to relive, you know? But there's a right way to remember it and there's a wrong way to remember it. Wrong way to remember it would be to even be tempted by whatever was in the past or be condemned by whatever was in the past. That's the wrong way to do it to the point with discouragement. The right way to do it is to say, Wow, Lord, thank you so much for pulling me out of that situation. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm no longer there. Thank you that you took me out of it because I couldn't do anything for myself. In that regard, it's important to remember because then we remember the power of the gospel, right? 
God urges Israel to remember the things that used to happen to them in the past. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 15, he says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember where you were. Remember that you were a slave to sin, but God brought you out of that with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. That is by the Lord's power that you are released from that slavery. So it's good to remember what the Lord has done on the cross for us once and for all. Amen? Let's move on to the next section. A patient attitude towards the lost. I promise you I won't take too long on this one. A patient attitude towards the lost. Verses 4 through 6. It says this. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you or they slander you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, they are surprised. Who was surprised? Perhaps friends or relatives, right? The people that you used to hang out with. The people that knew you (laughs) back when you were a sinful person. They are surprised when you do not join them, when you don't do the things that you used to do with them, we might experience those things, right? I knew that that was one of the reasons that got me out of LA is because if I hung out with anyone, they would expect me to do what they're doing. It's like, no way, I can't do that. I have to, I can't do that. And they're like, why, what's wrong with you? And that's interesting is that they think that when you're doing good, something's wrong with you, right? Um, So for example, because they don't think it's strange when people wreck their bodies, because that's what people do for pleasure sometimes, wreck their bodies, right? They don't think it's strange when people destroy their homes or relationships. When someone gets sober, when someone starts beginning to live a pure life, they think, what is wrong with that person? Do you see the backwardness of this? Instead of rejoicing for the person's sobriety, let's say, or purity, they ask, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, and, and, and now, that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that we uh, have now been opened our eyes to his grace and his mercy, we realize, okay, we need to be patient with them because they just don't see it the way we do anymore, like at this point. They can't. In fact, it's impossible for them to understand why the change in our lives. And so the best thing we can do is be patient with them, love them, represent Christ well, all right, and not partake in the sin that they're still dealing with, we must be patient toward those who they don't know Jesus. Because here's the thing. How many of you guys get upset with the people who are sinners and just don't know Jesus? I sometimes do, right? Well, guess what? You can expect that and there's reason for them to act the way that they do. In fact, that's not unusual for someone to behave in a way that's sinful if they don't know Jesus. Well, duh, <laughs> that's how they're going to behave. So we need to be patient with them because we once were that person. All right. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. It says this. And even if the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're being blinded. Like we were blinded. They can't figure it out. They can't see it. They don't understand it. They don't realize the goodness of God, right? For them, destruction is better. (laughs) We have to be patient with that. That means we don't just get away. That means we need to be present and we need to be able to um, uh, partake in their lives in a way that's healthy and also impacting for the glory of God. 
Uh, just a, a, a refresher, 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's just look back a page. Verse 15, it said this, and it's important. Just think about this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How are we going to give a defense if we're not with people who are, are lost, right? Who, are, who still need to know Jesus. We need to be able to be around these people. We can't just recluse and be in our holy huddle. That's not also not okay, because if Jesus did that, wow, the outcome would have been very different, wouldn't it? For the worse. He went and he mingled with the sinners, not in a way that where he fell and sinned, but he restored them. He showed them truth. He was the means of salvation. And so be prepared to do it with gentleness and respect. For you too, once was blind. All right? That's very important. We'll keep going. Verse 6 says this, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, if you look at the original, it reads like this, a little bit more clearly. Otherwise, this passage can be very easily misinterpreted. All right. It says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Okay. This is not saying that the gospel is preached to those who are dead. This is not saying that if you're dead, you get a second chance. The Bible is clear. The judgment comes once, right? This is saying that the gospel was being preached to those who were alive, but are now dead. Got it? Otherwise, we come up with different interpretations of this, and that can lead to, uh, to other, other beliefs that's just not biblically accurate. And so it says, even those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter was talking about the Christians who had already been martyred, Christians who had already perished, Christians who were falsely judged by men, and now they're in the presence of God and they receive their true judgment. Those who are dead, those who are now dead. There's no way to really help those who are dead. They have received their judgment. Look at 1 Peter 1.25. It says this, And this word is the good news that was preached to you who were the living. And then uh, in Hebrews 9.27, and these are just a couple of passages to help you understand that judgment is once. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment there is no waiting period. And so that's why the rest of this time is of uber importance, right? Because the moment that we perish, like I mentioned, whether Jesus comes or whether we die, then comes judgment. And so with that in mind, be patient to those who are lost. Don't we want them to experience the grace that we've received? Don't we want them to be able to understand the truth of the word? Remember, Jesus came and it sounded like he was challenging the law, didn't it? It sounded like he was saying, eh, this is all wrong. No, he came to fulfill it. He came to bring the heart of the law out and to help people understand what it actually was meaning and saying. And so we may be reviled, yes. We may be talked down to, but we don't do it in return. Just as Christ was our example, we also don't do that in return. And then we'll continue in uh, uh, this next section here. Have an expectant attitude towards Christ. Remember, keeping in mind, this is a good way to be stewards of God's grace. Have an expectant attitude towards Christ. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Here's the thing, guys. This, this world is going to be over 
sometime. I promise you, these folks who were reading this letter, they really thought that they would see Jesus' return in their lifetimes. All right? But the Bible is clear. Nobody knows when he will return. Nevertheless, the promise stands true. He will. Okay? So the end of all things is at hand. His return has been promised. We can count on that. We ought to be expectant of him. And we need to make the most of this time because he will be returning. Okay? And so we need to have that expectant attitude towards Christ. How do we do that? All right? Uh, some practic- practical things. In fact, Peter gives this to us and he lists this with, for us here. If we keep reading, it says, this is how we can be expectant towards Christ. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. So have self-controlled. Be sober-minded, which means that's the opposite of being in a frenzy or being mad or being crazy, like, ah, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That's not how we expect Jesus' return either, all right? He says, be prayerful. That means have a prayerful relationship with Jesus, right? Love one another. He says, if you keep reading there in verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, and we'll revisit that in a second. It says, show hospitality. That doesn't mean just open up your house and let people stay over. No, even with your attitudes, be hospitable, be welcoming to one another. Say hello, you know, smile at someone. You know, give someone dinner who needs dinner. Just do whatever you can to show hospitality. This is a good attitude to have as we expect Jesus' return. Continues saying um, uh, to one another, show hospitality without grumbling as each has received a gift to use it to serve one another. So minister your gifts for the service of others. That's also important. What are you gifted with? All right. If you're an introvert, that doesn't mean that you have to go do extroverted things. Just do something within your introvertness. (laughs) All right. But what can you do to serve others? Minister the gifts that the Lord has given you. And if you skip down all the way to the last verse, it says that, my, that in order that in everything God may be glorified. So that's the next thing we need to do is glorify God. And we can also add to rejoice and to not be ashamed, as written in following verses that we'll visit next week. But these are the kind of things that we ought to do to have an expectant attitude towards Christ. Remember, this is what it looks like to be a good steward of grace. Next point have a fervent attitude toward believers. I want to go back to verse 8. It says, above all, that was very important. We didn't just skip over that. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I love this verse, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, Peter actually draws from uh, Proverbs here, Proverbs 10, 12, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This affirms the power of Christian love. This is why it's important for us to love one another. This is what John emphasized, you know, in in 2 John. Uh, Truth and love together. If you remember, recall those sermons uh, when we did 2 John. The result of forgiveness and reconciliation when people have uh, harmed you or wronged you, you know, is, is through love. Like... This is how we can fix the problems that we have. This is how we can reconcile one another if we're loving, if we give each other some grace, forgiveness, right? Then we can come together and we can look past the sins. This is how love covers a multitude of sins. Look at James 5, 20. It says this, Let him know that whatever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. So there's more to this, not just to love one another. But remember, just in line with being militant against sin, that means if we're loving one another, we're calling each other out in love and in gentleness. We're letting people know, hey, that is not Christ-like, you know? Uh, that is not okay, and this is why. So we can't condone sin. We have to be able to reach each other in love and tell each other, hey, that's, that's not okay. We really need to nip that in the bud before it grows into something terrible. So it is not loving to see your brother struggling with sin and being totally confined to it and not saying anything. That's actually not loving. All right? Love. This love, to be able to confront it, to be able to address it, covers a multitude of sins in the sense that because it's addressed, because you're there to support, because you're there to, to be that, that battle buddy, guess what? That sin will dissipate, right? We overcome it together. It's better together, all right? So in this way, love covers a multitude of sins. I hope that that takes new light for you. It's so important for us to be together in this rest of the time that we're here. It's so important to be of one accord, being Christ-minded, Christ-like, having the same um, attitudes towards sin in that we don't want it. It's the very thing that caused Jesus to suffer, right? And it is the very thing that causes brokenness and suffering in this world. So we need to be militant towards that, but we also need to be slow and, and to anger and patient with those who don't understand it, we need to love one another, etc. I hope that this passage has popped out and that's how we steward grace in a good way that's how we respond to the grace that we've received so let's finish with uh, a few takeaways takeaway one do not acclimate to sin don't do it have you noticed that when you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to switch a light on it's really hard to the light really hurts did you know that there are some lights that are so bright that you just can't acclimate to like try staring at the sun for a while You'll never acclimate to that, right? It's hard to acclimate to the light, but it's good because that's where we see things, right? That's where all the darkness is exposed. But I wear these transition glasses, and anytime I go to a restaurant, like if we're doing a date, brunch, or lunch with my wife or something, you notice that some restaurants dim their lights so much that when you walk in, I can't even see. I'm like, what is going on here? I'm like double blind because now I can't see anything, and this is too dark. But after you find your seat, you acclimate to the darkness. It is so easy to acclimate to darkness. Now I'm talking in terms that are just physical and materialistic here, but it's very easy for us to sometimes acclimate to darkness when it comes to sin, when we don't address it, we're not militant against it. Do not acclimate to sin. It is bad, bad, bad stuff. I hope that you understand. And that goes back to just having that militant attitude towards sin. Takeaway number two. Be patient with those who don't know Jesus. Look at what 2 Peter 3, 9. This is the, the sequel from Peter. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's important for us to be patient with those who don't know Jesus because we want them to come to repentance. We want them to see that there's something different. We want them to experience the love of Christ. And thank you, Jesus, that you're giving us time to be able to work with that, right? Don't get stirred up in a way that you're upset with these people because it's easy to do. Remember, we're being called to be different, to be, be set apart, be holy. 
be patient with them so that they would come to repentance. And so in that regard, we have to be good stewards of grace. Amen? And then finally, watch and pray. Christ will return. The promise is there. And he never breaks his promises. He will return. We just don't know exactly when, right? And so be watchful, making the best of the rest of the time that we have here. Pray that you would not step away from relationship with God. Look at what Mark 13, 33 says. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when time will come. Time, again, of the essence. Mark 14, just a chapter later, says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is how we keep ourselves from acclimating to the darkness. We have to be watchful. We have to be prayerful. We have to be in constant relationship with the Lord. And then Colossians 4.2 says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So even though things are not that great right now, thank you, Jesus, because you have saved me from something potentially detrimental to my life. I, I, will, I will suffer here if it means being and experiencing your glory later, okay? We need to be able to see that. We need to remember, remember the Lord's grace and compassion for us. All of this simply means be alert and pray. Be alert. Watch out for one another. Watch out for yourselves. There's no place in the Christian life for laziness. And so we need to rise up, gear up, activate ourselves, and be good stewards of God's grace. Because tomorrow is not promised. We don't know how long the rest of the time is, do we? And so be prepared, be alert, do not snooze as we live out the rest of the time here on this world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your compassion, your instruction to us, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we're changed by it, Father, and, and that we're renewed and we're made brand new by your grace. Thank you, Father, that you exemplified to us what it, what it is like to take sin seriously. But let us not be satisfied with the sin in our lives, Lord Jesus. Help us learn to despise it. Help us learn to fight it. Help us learn to be able to overcome it, Lord Jesus, by your power, by your strength. And thank you, Father, for, your, for the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you are willing to suffer because of our sin, because of our wrongdoing, because of our rebellion. And Lord, I am so sorry that my sin caused you to bleed and to die. And thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, help us be that light. Help us not acclimate the darkness. Help us be patient with those, Father, whom we love, but sometimes irritate us, Lord Jesus. Help us be different, set apart. Help us be watchful, Lord Jesus, and continue to minister to us, Father, as we dive into your presence, Lord Jesus, and your word. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we're built up every day by you. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.